Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given only just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find this discussion to be both informative and provocative. This program is moderated to be politically neutral. Our speakers will give their opinions, and then we will encourage you to make up your own mind. This week's topics include COVID, vaccines, housing, charter schools, and fiscal policy. Our first speaker is Dan Gelber, who is the mayor of Miami Beach. COVID impacts every community, but each community differently. Uh, Miami Beach is unusual because of the number of tourists and snowbirds. Dan will be discussing today the recent uh, emigration out of New York to Miami Beach and what the implications are. Our second speaker is Derek Lowe, who by day is a researcher for the pharmaceutical company Novartis, and by night is one of the leading bloggers on pharma issues and vaccines in particular. We all have questions about which vaccine to take, when to get the shot, and how to find access to it. Derek will let us know these issues and much more. It turns out vaccine news is changing fast. Our third speaker is Steve Alloy, who is president and CEO of Stanley Martin Homes. You may recall that Steve spoke to us in the spring when he told us that home builders were selling their inventory like hotcakes. Shockingly, he could not build homes fast enough, despite the most severe economic downturn in our lifetimes. Steve will tell us about recent trends in the housing market, why it is hotter than ever, why mortgage rates are a culprit, and the great role of an increasing role of private equity in building communities of rental houses. Our fourth speaker is Robert Pontesio, who is a senior fellow and vice president at the Thomas Fordham Institute. Rob was embedded at the Charter School of the Success Academy and then wrote about his experience. His book is entitled, How the Other Half Learns, Equality, Excellence, and the Battle Over School Choice. I hope to learn why the Success Academy has been so successful, educating low-income minority children, and if their teaching methods for K-12 education are scalable. Our final speaker today is Alan Auerbach, who is my professor in advanced macroeconomics at Penn. Alan is now a professor of economics and law at UC Berkeley. Alan will be discussing his recent paper on fiscal policy for federal and state governments. We are currently running unprecedented budget deficits. In this, is this sustainable, and if so, for how long? And what does this surge in deficit spending mean for the future of government finance? And can we no longer afford our long-term social programs like Medicare and Social Security if current productivity uh, remains where it is? Okay, I just uh, want to make a, one interesting announcement. Uh, last week, I said that I was in the market for new interns on what happens next, and I've got two new ones, Claire Graham, will be joining us from London, where she is currently a senior in high school and will be entering Columbia University in the fall. Uh, Claire's father, Alex Graham, is a very good friend of mine and one of the founders of my original book club. Our second choice uh, came to us from a fraternity brother of mine, uh, Bob Waldstein uh, at Penn. He, he emailed me and listens to the show, and he said, I've got a young kid who's uh, taking a gap year at Harvard. He would love to be an intern. Anyway, I locked him up. Adam Levin, Thank you for joining as an intern on the show as well. Okay. With that, let's go to our show. I'll turn it over to Dan Gelber, the mayor of Miami Beach. Take it away, Dan. Thanks. Thanks, Larry. So, and congratulations to your interns. Um, you know, the, the question that you sort of had, you gave me a, a few, but one of them that I sort of liked was, why are so many people, so many New Yorkers coming here, and what are we going to do with them? 
Uh, and I thought that was an interesting question because a lot of people would answer it differently. Uh, it's obviously not just New Yorkers. Um, there seems to be a migration to South Florida, to Miami, and to my city, Miami Beach, uh, almost on a daily basis. It's not just people. It's businesses. It's hotels. It's restaurants. We just got uh, Carbone's Italian Restaurant, which is a pretty well-known New York brand. Tech and finance are moving here. And I've lived here my entire life with other, other than a few times for school or for a brief uh, stint in Washington. But, you know, I've seen our city and our community try to create uh, itself in different ways, sort of become the best version of itself. And it's gotten its right a few times and it's missed a few times. Right now, I think it's getting its right. It's getting it right. But I think what's happened is the pandemic has sort of revealed a, I guess, a work-life balance that people seek and that they just aren't seeing uh, in the places, perhaps because of the pandemic temporarily, but also just in the general way. Um, our community, I think, has become a lot more serious. Uh, the amenities of, uh, that you have here now are much different than they used to be. When I was a, a child, for instance, they really, I was an usher uh, in my teens at the, at the convention center where it was only professional wrestling or boxing. Now we have our Basel and all these other things that happen every year. And we become a wellness community. We've got we've begun to animate our outdoor spaces in ways that they had never really been appreciated. We sort of had coasted on the strength of our of our beaches and our weather for a long time, for decades. Now we have added to that all of these other things that that sort of round out your life. And while before people were coming here, I think just for a few weeks or maybe a month or two, uh, you know, people during the pandemic have come here and are staying here. I can't tell you how many businesses have started in our city in the last year simply because somebody came down uh, to escape New York uh, and or Chicago or somewhere uh, and decided they liked the house they were renting and bought it or or, or wanted to start their business here. Uh, so, so I think the first thing that's happened is the pandemic has sort of revealed to a lot of folks that if you're going to be stuck at home or you're going to work remotely, you might as well do it from a place where you can go out and do things that you might not be able to do where you are. I think the second thing is our our workforce amenities in a sense that you've seen a lot of consolidation of law and business and therefore a lot of things you need to run a business are available here. Uh, and, and indigenous workforce here has also elevated substantially. Uh, you know, versus the University of Miami when I was a, a younger person was known as Suntan U. It's now a major teaching and research institution, not known for its football team, obviously, but for its hospital system. So I think that has been another thing in that the maturity of the, fina the financial institutions that are here, uh, the proximity to all of the other sort of business groups, whether they're in Latin America or European, are all here. Uh, and so that has become, we become a place where you can do business and you can live and be accustomed to your, the same life you had, just with a much better uh, climate and all of those other amenities. And of course, the final thing I think, which uh, has always brought people here, is the uh, is the fact that we don't have a state income tax. Some people are very honest when they talk about it. They simply say, "I came here to escape, you know, to save 10, 20 percent of my income, or whatever it is." Uh, we're a pretty business-friendly state, but that's something you always have to be a little careful about because. Uh, while we while we're sort of frugal in what we uh, tax, uh, we need to pay attention to our public schools because anyone who comes here is going to want a workforce that has a comes from a good school system or want to send their kids to a good school. So that's always been a challenge for us because it's not a well-funded school system. Uh, in in South Florida, we've tried to add things to it. In our city, we have a program where we actually 
have our cultural institutions delivering, you know, uh, STEM instruction into the into the uh, into the curriculum. And so I, I guess overall, I just have to say that all of these things have really put together to make this a very optimal location. I'm sure it looks a little brighter because of the pandemic, uh, but I also think that it, it's changed in a lot of ways over the last few decades and over the last few years. Uh, and it's not just my city. I think uh, Miami Beach is a is one of the brands that are well known in our city, but Miami and Miami Beach sort of go hand in hand and uh, we tend to work together in almost all of what we're trying to do. So I think that it's the, it's the region as much as anything else. And I suspect it's going to continue to attract people. We had a lot of New Yorkers here before. We had 4,000 addresses in my city that were owned by New Yorkers. Uh, but now it's a lot more, and the business interests are coming as well. Uh, Starwood is opening up uh, its headquarters in my hometown. They're, they're building their almost complete with their office uh, center. So a lot of folks are just saying, this is where I want to be. And we're happy to have them uh, because they really do elevate the city and they do give us the opportunity to do the kinds of things, especially in the art and culture area, that we think is important. So I don't know if I hit my six minutes, but that, but further refined, say if not. Okay, great. Um, as someone that recently rented a house in Miami Beach, uh, I've total buy-in. And what has shocked me, uh, looking at the skyline of Miami, uh, is the amount of building going on. Um, you know, when you're in New York or Chicago, there's some building, but this is a, a true boom. Um, what do you, you know, when you, when you have a very fast-growing community, it puts a lot of pressure on real estate. It puts pressure on uh, all sorts of institutions when there's rapid growth. Uh, that being said, also, there's a lot of pressure on institutions when there's uh, rapidly decreasing growth. Um, but how, do you, how are you going to deal with this, I'll call it the building boom? Well, I think it's, you know, like we have to, we, our urbanism has to be pretty smart. In my city, it's, it's always going to be limited. We're never going to be more than 92,000 people, and it's a small city. Uh, Miami will have more uh, density than we do, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, interaction between the two cities. I think we're sort of accustomed to the, because we, we always had a construction-based economy. Unfortunately, it was a growth economy, which I didn't think was the healthiest thing in the world. But we're accustomed to sort of the ups and downs of construction. We, we can deal with density, uh, especially if we build the right way. I do worry we're going we're gonna to sprawl, and that's always been a concern, uh, and there's talk about more sprawl. But I think for the folks that are coming here, they seem to be most interested in the city centers. They seem to be looking for something that they had before, but maybe with a better view and a big, beautiful, and a multiple parks nearby uh, and a couple other amenities that they, they just couldn't access uh, regularly where they were. So it's interesting, most of the uh, influx of people, for what we've been talking about, is really for the, the core of the city center, not so much, you know, the, uh, the, the suburbs or the future or the exurbs. It's really been very limited uh, to these areas, and that's easier to deal with because they tend to be higher buildings, and and you can you can take care of a school system and and the infrastructure issues. But we're going to have to obviously update infrastructure, especially as it, as it uh, deals with water, which has been a challenge for all of Miami-Dade County. Um, traffic. One of the great challenges of any growing urban city is traffic. Um, and I've been caught in a bunch of traffic going back and forth between Miami and Miami Beach. Um, and this is during COVID when other, when I speak to my friends in other communities, they say there is absolutely no traffic. Um, 
how how are you going to deal with that infrastructure? Right. Well, look, we're trying to in my city, we're trying to promote uh, the kind of uh, mobility that comes with a live work play environment. We want to increase our class A office building so that we people don't have to necessarily drive as much across the causeway uh, to 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 Miami uh, to go to work. Um, you know, we've created protected bike lanes everywhere. We're, we've added bridges so things can be more pedestrian, and we're creating uh, all those kinds of things that I think you probably were accessing before. We we have uh, mass transit plans. Uh, they but like a lot of mass transit plans, by the time you build them, they're you know they're they're dated 10 or 20 years, and they dealt with a problem that no longer is here. Um, you know, we are doing things. We've we've got a lot of uh, we're about to implement a few different plans and a few different corridors. That are already funded or that are you know fully designed uh, but it's always going to be a challenge for us especially because so many people are still in cars there there has been there have been connections between the the tri-county area in south florida dade broward and palm beach uh, that are filled immediately so we know there's a demand for it um, but for for us the first thing is to create as many uh, as many ways to avoid it like we have a trolley system in our city it's free, and we have about half a million people, maybe more than that, every month using it. But it's mostly going to be for tourists, uh, workers, and maybe folks going to the, the supermarket. Uh, but for commuters and things like that, until we have sort of systems that are able to move more people, uh, it's going to continue to be a challenge. And, and But I think a lot of people are uh, designing our our communities. And my city, like Miami, has a lot of smaller communities so that you can actually live uh, very close to where you work which will help a lot traditionally we've been we've had for decades you know people live in a suburb and then they commute to some to downtown miami or to brickle now you can see all these new office areas sprouting up along uh, commercial residential properties or or even neighborhoods that that are you know single family homes so i think that's a good mix because it keeps people in an area it gives them a chance to not have to commute and gets gets cars off the road, but it can be challenging. There's no question about that. You know, just to take the other side of that, when they built suburban office um, in Long Island or in Westchester in New York, they I think they increased traffic because a number of the people who work in the suburban office don't live in the community. They have to uh, they have to come from somewhere else, and that just I think adds. That decreases. Just wonder if you thought about that when you did some of that analysis. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, our, we don't really. I would say the suburban offices in Dade County. It's a sprawling county. It's a huge county, but actually, the, where most of the construction is happening is in the urban core, or in uh, you know, or in areas that have emerged as part of the urban core. Um, you know, Wynwood, uh, the design district, things like that, which in Miami are actually you know, a mile from mm-hmm. downtown or, or a mile and a half. They're not exactly what we would call, um, you know, sort of the exurbs or the suburbs or anything like that. So those areas which are, gonna, which are seeing the most amount of building are also seeing a, a, a tremendous amount of, of residential being built. We also have, we have, a, we have a, a, a pretty good metro rail system, which is becoming more and more uh, used, which uh, does at least allow folks to come from Maine uh, suburban areas to the downtown area. We have a we, we have different kinds of mass transit that are working. Uh, we just ha- we just need more of it, frankly, because we built it, and uh, and it's dealing with issues uh, that obviously are are no longer existing because uh, there's there's so much the the community has changed so much and the 
in the decade or longer that it took to construct these mass transit systems. Um, when I told some of my friends that I was heading down to spend significant time in Miami Beach, um, some of them said, oh, my God, it's so culturally dead there. And what you opened with was, you know, one of our great advantages is the cultural opportunities in Miami Beach. Who's right? Who's wrong? How did you, how did you get Art Basel to participate in Miami Beach? Um, that was a huge coup. How do you think about all these new muse art museums that have opened up and other cultural opportunities, both in Miami and Miami Beach, that have attracted a, a new clientele of people? Yeah, we, we've really, I, that's, that's an easy argument to make. Art Basel's been here 18 years. Miami City Ballet, probably twice that much. New World Symphony. Uh, and then you have the Perez and the Arsht uh, and the Frost and all these other museums. And they're all in the, in the ICA. They're all in the same area. And then you have uh, cultural areas like Wynwood in the Design District uh, and Collins Park in my city uh, that have all just cropped up with museums and with um, cultural fair. Uh, you know, I think it was, it was in both the Times as in a bunch of newspapers. We, we have a drama company in our city, Miami New Drama, which did this thing called The Seven Deadly Sins, which is, I think, the only actual drama going on in the country. And they found a way to do it outside of Lincoln Road in a really inventive way. Um, the city has really embraced a culture, not just in the week that Art Basel is here, but, but all the time. Uh, and I think it's only going to continue because we think it is the best version of ourselves. I, we feel like it attracts the right kind of tourist, and it also gives uh, residents incredible amenities. Uh, we, you know, the New World Symphony has a huge screen outside where uh, every uh, Tuesday and Sunday uh, thousands of people come to watch movies or simulcast um, you know, orchestra uh, offerings. So that happens all the time, and it's only grown. I mean, our challenge is feeding it. But with all the folks coming from communities where they expect it, like New York or Chicago or other places, Washington, where they're very mature uh, cultural scene, it's, you know, the demand for it has only increased. And that's fine because they also tend to be terrific sponsors and funders of these, uh, you know, of these um, initiatives. So for us, it's become something that's feeding itself. We keep, you know, we, we just had something in my city on the ballot to increase the Wolfsonian Museum. Uh, I think we're going to do the same thing with other museums around. They all want larger spaces and more uh, modern spaces to attract more people who seem to want to come there. So I think it's, it's, a, it's only becoming greater and having people who want that has given us a real a lease on it in the sense that now we've got people who will show up and will write checks, and that's uh, really critical to the arts community. So um, I received questions from the audience during the show, and I received two identical questions, uh, both from Mitch Feynman and David Schulman, both saying, uh, how long uh, will it take for Miami Beach to be underwater, and how is the mayor going to deal with that? <laughs> so good luck on that one. Yes, every. Every morning I, I look outside, uh, and it looks to be about, I don't know, Larry, if you're in town, but it looks to be about 78 and sunny right That's now. Um, we are, look, we are uh, a barrier island built on porous limestone, uh, and so we were the first, one of the first communities in the country, perhaps the world, to sort of deal with sunny day flooding in a way that impacted our lives. So we're not, I'm not one of these mayors that says uh, we're going to learn how to live with water. We're already learning how to live with water. We are well into a program. We're raising our streets. We're changing our our um, our a whole process for drainage from a gravitational system to a pump system. Uh, we 
We did an Urban Land Institute study of our program, which we've already spent about $600 million on, uh, to make sure we're doing it right. We brought in Harvard and Columbia to do more pressure testing of the plan because when you're the canary, you know, it's great to have a canary in the mine shaft unless you're the canary. So we really want to make sure we're doing it right. Um, we're up, we've upgraded all of our codes uh, to create higher uh, points consistent with the standards that uh, the folks we talk to and our experts say we need to. So the city is, is a, remember, it's sort of a, it's a man-made city. So we, we can raise it, and we have been raising it, um, and we're going to continue to. But it's, and the thing that I think is most important is that in every area where we have done an engineering solution, and we've already raised probably six miles or more of, of streets, maybe eight by this point, um, the flooding has either gone away or is, is very diminished. And we keep track of that. We, we, from an engineering perspective, we know, you know, what it looks like at a certain uh, level uh, and a certain tide, and then what it looks like two years later after the work, and it's dry. So we, we Sunset uh, Harbor, uh, which is this beautiful, thriving community that has, uh, you know, more Pilates studios than probably any place in the world, used to be yeah. called uh, Sunset, uh, you know, Sunset Lake. Now it barely ever floods, even in uh, when, we have, when we have these rain bombs or even hurricane-type uh, weather. So we know we can solve it. We just have to really be willing to do it and spend the money, and we are. Okay. Um, I wanted to bring uh, Ellen Auerbach into this conversation because you were touched on not having an income tax and still having a well-funded school system. Um, you know, there's three major silos for um, three major silos for uh, taxation. There's sales tax. There's corporate tax. Uh, there's income tax. Uh, there's property tax. So, how do you think about um, if you don't have an income tax? Uh, you know, what are you relying on to p to pay for government services, or do you just have less of it? And in in the northern states, they're struggling under a, a huge pension problem. How do you think about um, the state of the of Florida and Miami uh, counties' uh, pension scheme? Or is that just a, a function of having a, an older city versus a growing newer city? Well, first of all, I spent about a, dec oh, I spent a decade in the House and Senate um, in Florida, so I spent a lot of time on tax policy and school policy. I was a Democratic leader, so that should tell you where I fell on things. Um, you know, Florida doesn't fund its school systems particularly well, uh, and it does a lot of things on the cheap. There's plenty of metrics that can show you that. Uh, and so they do push to local government a lot of burdens to provide services. And in some areas, there's not a whole lot of government going on. In Jacksonville, for instance, there's one city, one county. It's Jacksonville. In, my, in Dade County, there are 34 cities. They like government. They like a lot of Easterners who came here and settled, like to have a mayor or a commissioner they can call. Uh, same thing in Broward and Palm Beach. So um, what's happened in Florida is that it's, it, it is, uh, frankly, it is a bit on the cheap. Uh, how they, you know, they don't give raises to state employees. They don't spend enough money on schools. So, but at the local level, you can actually supplement some with that. And you can try to help. And so for me, I, I don't have the same issue that a lot of places have. I have, you know, if you look at the 34 cities in Dade County, my property tax rate is probably in the middle, maybe lower. But we have way more amenities because for a city of 92,000, we have a $40 billion property tax base. So, you know, 85% of, uh, of the budget of, our, of my city comes from non-homesteaded property, and a homestead 
in person is likely a voter or a full-time resident. And so it comes from big hotels, uh, big commercial enterprises that, uh, you know, that really aren't, uh, you know, the residents. Um, and there are some places like that. But there are places where, uh, you know, they don't have the advantages of a city like mine, uh, and, they ha- and, they, and they're just stuck with only what um, they get from the state. Uh, and, and so when you get your property tax bill, and there are three parts, including the school part, you know, you're funding most of government. Now, the total tax burden is hugely lower. Our, uh, our sales tax is about 9% in my city, and that's one of the higher ones because we have ta- uh, add-ons because of some of it, that's probably mostly for you know, people staying in hotels because it includes some extra points. But uh, if you, you know, but that's gonna be the high, it's gonna be anywhere, it's gonna be below that, it's gonna be 6% really almost everywhere, or 7%. So if you think of other places, they have a state income tax and they have a higher sales tax. Uh, you know, so we don't, we don't really have those issues. It does inspire people to come here uh, but I think it's challenging, honestly. I think that, you know, we've had to really put our city money into schools, which are not run by cities. They're run by the county and uh, under the funding uh, uh, formulas put forward by the state legislature. So typically cities have nothing to do with schools, but we do because I think my residents just want us to. So we, you know, we've done the STEAM program where we literally are spending probably, you know, I think we're spending close to a million on different things in our schools right now, and it's just a small feeder pattern, but we send instruction in, we, uh, we build things in the schools, we just put a new football team in, uh, a field in there uh, when the Super Bowl was here a year ago. So, you'll, you know, I think that's probably one of the attractions our community has is that we, we're a little different than the rest of the state, and a lot of the things we're doing where the state is not funding it the way it should. But but that's also, I guess, to many folks, why they want to be here because they can they can keep more of their money. Alan Auerbach, do you want to comment on that? Yes, uh, I mean the states vary a lot. It helps to be a growing, thriving state. I, yeah. You mentioned uh, states in the north. You know, if you're a state that uh, doesn't have a growing public work sector workforce, uh, you've got a huge ratio of uh, retirees. Uh, to current workers, and it's really hard when you have unfunded uh, pensions and retirement benefits uh, to keep that going. And so states that are losing population or areas in states losing population are really up against it in terms of uh, funding long-term commitments. Um, you know, other than that, states, uh, as the mayor said, states vary a lot in their uh, per capita taxes and spending. States like uh, Florida or Texas that don't have income taxes uh, they do rely more on property taxes and sales taxes than uh, states with income taxes, but they also just have lower spending per capita. Uh, and, uh, and then you get funny, quirky states like California, which relies very heavily on income and, and sales taxes because we, going back to Proposition 13, have much lower property taxes on average than we otherwise would have. Understood. Okay, uh, we're going to go to our second speaker now. Uh, Derek Lowe is going to be speaking to us about changes in the vaccines, uh, what what to use, uh, what the new data is showing us, and what we need to be concerned about going forward. Derek, take it away. Oh, thanks. Well, as everyone knows, we have two vaccines approved here in the U.S., the Moderna one and the Pfizer-BioNTech one, and those are being rolled out 
and could certainly stand to be rolled out even more rapidly. But just in the last few days, we've had data on two more, one from a small company called Novavax and another one from Johnson & Johnson. And on top of those, we still have the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, which is waiting for regulatory approval here. These things are all different sorts of platforms. The Moderna and Pfizer ones are both mRNA. The AstraZeneca Oxford and J&J are both a viral vector, in this case an adenovirus. And Novavax is a more traditional route that is just a, a protein which is being injected directly in with an adjuvant to give you a bigger immune response. So it's good news that we have all these platforms going. One of the things that surprised everyone, though, in the business is just how effective the two mRNA ones have been. This is the first time that mRNA vaccines have really had large-scale human trials, and they have worked out very well indeed. As most people know, both vaccines came in about 95% effective. But keep in mind, that was against the original classic coronavirus of earlier this year. And, of course, you've all seen the headlines about the new variants coming on. B117, which originally was discovered in the U.K., and B1351, which was originally discovered and is spreading rapidly in South Africa. So what do these things mean for the situation? It looks like, first off, that the U.K. variant, the B117, is going to be handled pretty well by these vaccines. We don't have direct data on the Pfizer and Moderna, but both J&J and Novavax in their recent data have shown that they have almost the equivalent efficacy against that strain. So I personally am not as worried about that one. That one is, in fact, probably more transmissible, but it doesn't seem to lead to more severe disease, and people who are vaccinated with our existing agents look like they'll be able to handle it. Now, the other one, the B1351, which is famously a problem in South Africa now, that is a little more worrisome. Novavax had data directly from South Africa, and they found that a good number of their patients had already been infected with the earlier coronavirus. So it really seems like this one can cause reinfection in some people, and both it and the J&J &J vaccine definitely seem to be less effective, down from, say, in the 90% range, down to about the 50 or 60% range. Now, that's still not bad. The seasonal flu vaccine is only around 60% effective because we have trouble gauging which flu strain is going to be the big one each year. So a 50 or 60% vaccine is a huge amount better than nothing, but it is not as good as you would ideally want. So we're going to have to, frankly, try to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as we possibly can to knock down these variants, especially the B1351, before they spread rapidly through our population. I don't know if it's too late or not. I suspect that we probably have a lot more cases of both of them than we know about. There are three or four states where the B1351 has been seen. It's probably in others, so it's going to be a race. The good news on that, though, is that the companies working on these vaccines, especially the mRNA companies and Novavax, are able to make 
variations of their vaccine relatively quickly. These would be available presumably later on this year as booster shots for people who've already had the vaccine that's being rolled out now and would provide even more protection. The other good news is that after you've been vaccinated, your body, your immune system continues to refine its own antibodies. This goes on for months. And it appears that these refined antibodies, if you come back and check two or three months later, are actually better against the variant coronaviruses. That's where the refinement comes in. So again, we've just got to get these vaccines into people's arms as quickly as possible. Give them the protection they can get now and let their immune systems get to work on making even better antibodies inside them. That is the key. The longer we wait, the worse the job we do of it, the better the chance that an even worse variant can come along, one that escapes completely from our vaccine protection. There's no guarantee that that can't happen. It hasn't yet, but the field of uh, immunology is a very wide one, and the number of variations that the virus can do is a very long list. So we've got to be as quick as we can. Derek, um, let me start asking you some questions. One of the public policy issues has been the um, value judgment of equity versus efficiency with regard to getting the vaccine out. Um, yeah. I think that the, one of the big causes for the delay is we've decided we want to help a certain uh, clientele more than others. So let's say we want to help essential workers, right. nurses, doctors, and then the elderly in nursing homes um, over 65 with hypertension. Whatever criteria we've created uh, has clearly slowed down the um, distribution of the vaccine. And we're seeing this on a global basis. It's not like we can blame uh, a single state or a single city. Uh, we have hoarding of the vaccine going on at various uh, locations. Instead of lining people up at, uh, at a parking lot and just saying, you know, show me your shoulder and pounce, you got a new vaccine, you know, we turn into a, a, a web mess where people are spending their afternoons trying to figure out where, how to get on what list. Right. Um, I'm wondering in that desire for equity and equality over efficiency, um, we lead ourselves open, as you described, for a potential catastrophe where uh, not enough people are immunized and we leave ourselves up for a, a much worse and many more deaths than necessary right. if we'd gone with a more efficient route. Yeah, it's a good question. We may have to rethink this a bit because the categories that we have, healthcare workers, essential workers, the elderly, make perfect sense from a public health standpoint, but the execution of that is the tough part. As you say, there were reports, and occasionally still are, of places that are just having to throw away the tail end of their vaccine packages because they can't get enough people in the authorized groups. That is insane. Another insanity was Governor Cuomo in New York threatening to fine any healthcare practitioners who actually did use vaccine doses like that and vaccinate someone out of the queue. That is also insane. I think what we may have to do is go to a system where we say, look, those of you who are healthcare workers or are over, you know, some age cutoff, we strongly urge you to get to these vaccination centers. You need to be the first. But on the other hand, 
if the uptake among various groups is not as high as it should be, we need to make sure that none of this goes to waste. So sure, vaccinate the elderly, vaccinate healthcare workers more quickly, but don't turn people away if you don't happen to have any 75-year-olds in line and your vaccine is starting to warm up. No, you've got to, you've got to use every single drop of it you can. When we first started in this process, there was discussions. Um, we had epidemiologists on this What Happens Next program, and they kept talking about r naught as being the critical variable to determine uh, how this and how mm-hmm. this will spread. So, you know, initially, I'll call it in spring, we were unsure where r naught was. It was somewhere between two and three. Um, and then with social distancing and masks, maybe it dropped a little bit. So we haven't seen a crazy exponential since. We've seen sort of a linear path. Um, but then with the UK variant yes. being um, more transmissible, that would boost r naught from, let's say, 1.8 to 2.5, just to make up some numbers. Um, I haven't heard where that South Africa variant r naught is. And I'm wondering, when you use a 90% effective rate, you just you can multiply, you know, one minus uh, 0.9 or 0.1 times two, and you get 0.2, that thing dies out very quickly. At 50% and two, it goes to one. Now, you don't mm-hmm. need that much lower than one to get this thing under control either. Um, how do you think about r naught? How do you think about in the context of the various, I'll call it mutation variants? How do you think about uh, the vaccine percentages in the context of that problem? Well, you've laid out the math exactly right. The British variant definitely seems to have a higher R0, and the South African variant, I believe, also does, considering how rapidly it has turned into the dominant form in South Africa. At this point, I don't think we can call it a statistical accident. It really seems to be more transmissible. And those are the numbers. Your vaccine efficacy needs to try to keep up with that, and that is going to be tricky because if the vaccines that we're thinking of as in the 90% range are really only 50 or 60, that means the number of people that you have to get vaccinated, the percentage of the population that you need to get vaccinated just gets larger and larger. So it makes it a steeper climb. It really does. I am pretty sure that both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, when we get the numbers, are going to also come in at around 50 or 60 percent against the B1351 South African. I don't see any reason why they wouldn't. So it gets back to what we were just talking about. The faster you can get people vaccinated, the more people, the better. I also also want to talk about behavioral changes. Um, So people that have had the virus, people that have been vaccinated, they tend to be, I'll call it, a little bit more cavalier uh, Mm -hmm. with regard to their behavior. Um, You know, they go back to kissing people. They go back to taking off their masks. Um, They they get on planes. I have had it. I'm free. I can go do what I want. Um, And that change in behavior, uh, I think, increases R0. How do you think about uh, behavioral changes and the ability of public health workers or public health officials to continue to get masks and social distancing in the context of people who have had it um, in the time, yeah. I guess, before South Africa shows up 
and then how it's going to change once South Africa starts to take over, the, you know, our population. Right. It's already hard because of, you know, pandemic fatigue. People have just had enough. And you're right. People who have been infected and recovered or now people are getting vaccinated are thinking, great, you know, I'm covered. B1351 is quite possibly going to make us pay for that attitude because it does look like it's more likely to reinfect people or to be able to reinfect people. The other problem is that a lot of these vaccines, of course, are two-dose series, and you don't get the full protection after the first dose. A lot of people are worried about people getting the first dose and then immediately assuming, hey, everything's fine. I'll get that second dose in a while, but I'm ready for karaoke night. You're not. It even takes two weeks after the first dose, 10 days to two weeks before your immune system even responds. And you can see that clearly in the clinical trial data and in real-world data from the Israeli vaccination program. That's just about the amount of time it takes your antibody production to ramp up and your T-cells to get primed. And it is beautiful. It's right out of an immunology textbook. But that means that if you get vaccinated and then decide after three or four days, well, it's time to hit the, you know, to hit the bars, you have not done yourself any favors. So behaviorally, we're in for a rough ride. I, I hate to say it. Derek, this is Robert Pondicio. Speaking of pandemic fatigue, in, in various communities, temp temperatures are, are running high over whether or not to reopen schools for in-person oh, learning, yeah. uh, including social and emotional risk to children who are not in school. Can you weigh in? I don't want to take you out of your area of expertise in terms of schooling, but can you weigh in on how local officials should be thinking about when and whether to return to in-person schooling? Oh, that is a hard one, and it really is kind of out of my range, but there is no doubt that children have been less likely to get infected themselves, as far as we can tell, and certainly less likely to display any severe illness themselves. Not zero, but less likely than adults. However, it appeared at first, at any rate, that the British strain, the B117, might be infecting younger adults and adolescents at a much greater rate than what we'd seen with the other. It is a terrible call because you're absolutely right. It is much better for the children to be able to get back into school. It's better for their psychological health, better for their education, their development. But against that, we have to wonder, are we making an epidemiological mistake? I can't make the call. I really can't. It's horrible. And we need more data, and we don't have time to generate more data. Um, you know, in the, in the pregame, Derek, we were talking about how this mutation is happening. Um, can you speculate a little bit about the physiology of why this uh, virus is mutating, how it's mutating, and uh, just explain the physiology of it? Sure. Yeah, the interesting things about these two new variants is that they, they appeared on the scene with a whole suite of mutations. Now, people have been sequencing viral infections for months now. Uh, if you look at a site called nextstrain.org, you can see a tremendous family tree of these things that were branching out. So they have all the different families and, and groups named, and we can say, ah, this branched off of this bunch. This, these two showed up with six or eight or nine mutations all at once, skipping some intermediate stages. So that leads to a very high likelihood that both of these independently developed in one or more people who had had long-term infection, quite possibly 
someone who is immunocompromised and was fighting off this virus for weeks or even months. And that gave the virus a chance to have a long look at the kind of antibody and T-cell responses it was up against and to apply evolutionary selection pressure. It's not the sort of thing you see if an immune system can clear the thing out fairly rapidly, but if it sits there for months, it keeps trying out variations. That was actually shown in an immune-compromised patient in Massachusetts. paper came out in December where several of the mutations that are seen in the British and South African, South African one appeared in this one person because they'd been infected for months and were unable to fight it off. So that's probably where this is developing. And it just goes to the same point that the longer we give this virus a chance at us, the higher the chances that we roll up you know, some combination that we really don't want to have to deal with. And so how do you see this thing playing out? Um, do you see the variants continue to grow as a proportion of the existing virus in the population? Um, greater and greater numbers are vaccinated. Um, we respond uh, with boosters that take on those variants. And sure enough, it, it continues to mutate. How, in your own mind, how do you see this evolutionary matchup between human ingenuity and behavioral problems against a, um, I'll call it, a naturally mutating virus without a brain just trying sure. to take advantage of our systems? I think we're going to win, but it's going to be a little longer and harder than we'd like because now with two more vaccines that look like they're effective and do not seem to have any major safety signals, we've got more weapons we just have to roll these things out here and across the world as fast as we possibly can. The good news on that, too, is that some of these have very good production figures coming. So I think we're going to win, but it's going to be a harder slog than we envisioned at first, and it's going to take longer. So we're going to be fighting this thing the rest of the year. The booster shot idea will be coming on later in the year. We may have to go another round of that. I think with the new vaccines and with the amount of production we can do, we are going to get ahead of it. But um, the idea that everything is going to be normal, you know, by the end of the summer, I, I can't see that happening. These variants are going to continue to spread. Uh, we had Dr. Jay Levy from UCSF, um, one of the original leaders uh, in the HIV crisis. Sure. And he mentioned that um, when you take your first vaccine, it affects the uh, efficacy of any other vaccine that you take going forward um, because your body remembers that first antibody it creates for mm -hmm. uh, something similar to this protein. Um, in that context, how do you think about which vaccine we should take? Um, do we have enough information to make that judgment or do you think they're all basically good enough? At this point, I would say take whatever vaccine you can get. Um, that's, you know, from a public health standpoint. And as I say, I don't think that the mRNA ones, although they have very good efficacy numbers, I don't think they're going to be that kind of efficacy against the variant strains coming. It's going to be back down with everyone else. So take whatever you can get. Now, there are questions about could you take one kind of vaccine as your first shot and another for the second. Right now, AstraZeneca is studying that in the U.K. with a one-shot mRNA, second-shot adenovirus. 
So there's actually a controlled trial going on with that. You would think that would work, but it would be good to have data on it. But overall, practically speaking, take whatever you can get. Uh, we got a question coming in from one of our listeners, uh, Rick Bloom. He wants to know um, how much better the vaccine is than having actually had COVID as a, as a protection. Yeah. And maybe to break up that into a couple of parts, let's imagine you had an asymptomatic case, you had a mild case, and you had a horrible case. Are they mm. all the same? Yeah, good point. There are probably some people whose innate immune systems, especially younger people whose innate immune systems, not the antibodies and T-cells, were able to fight the virus down to a greater extent than someone who's older. In that case, they don't have as good an immunological memory. The innate immune system doesn't remember. It just handles everything on a case-by-case. So they might actually be more vulnerable, even though they had a very mild case because their innate system could clear it. Now, as far as, just a second, I just lost my train of thought there. What was the first part of your question? Because I had something ready to go for that. It was the choice between uh, which is a better uh, protection, a vaccine or yes. having had it. And if having had it um, is asymptomatic, mild, or horrible case, uh, better for preparing you with antibodies. Yeah, there was just a paper that came out within the last few days from a very large team, partly at Columbia in New York and partly in South Africa and other locations, where they studied convalescent plasma from people who'd been infected and studied that against these new, two new variants and also studied plasma from people who had had the mRNA vaccines. It looks like the vaccinated people's plasma was actually more effective. So honestly, it looks like getting the vaccines will provide you with more immunological protection, more memory than actually having the coronavirus in most cases. Now, maybe if you had a really severe coronavirus, you really developed a strong response. But if you developed a really strong response, maybe your illness wouldn't have been as severe. So I think in general, vaccination is actually a better bet for you immunologically than getting the virus. And, of course, you don't run all the risk of actually uh, what the virus can do to you. Okay. All right. Uh, we're going to move on to our third speaker. Uh, I'd like to welcome back uh, Steve Alloy, who is the president and CEO of uh, Stanley Martin Homes. Go ahead. Uh, thanks, Larry. Um, so the single-family housing market in the U.S. is booming, and it's experiencing a surge that feels, feels eerily like the housing bubble in the mid-2000s. So today there's a severe shortage of available homes in the resale market, as we have by far the lowest inventory of homes listed for sale in my lifetime. And so when a house gets listed, there's probably a dozen offers, and it sells immediately. And things are so frenzied that last month, more than half of buyers in a national survey reported submitting offers without ever physically visiting the home. And so similarly, in the new home market, demand is red hot and sales are soaring. And sales of homes by my company and other national home builders would be higher, but so many neighborhoods are oversold with orders, builders are frequently capping monthly sales in order to keep up with production. And so why is the single family home market so frenzied? And if we go back before COVID hit, the single family market was really strong. Uh, demographics were a big driver as the millennials were finally getting married, having kids, and wanting to buy single-family homes. Then COVID really accelerated single-family demand. 
as people were working and educating from home, they needed extra rooms. And as the benefits of restaurants and bars and events in urban areas diminished, people flocked to the suburbs where there was more space at lower prices as well as a yard. And then COVID stimulus caused mortgage rates to drop to absurdly low record levels. And that meant that millions of people could suddenly afford to buy a home. And so the surge in demand, along with the impacts from COVID, have had big impacts on the ability to produce new homes. And so one aspect is with land. Although it's a hot market, there are actually fewer new home communities today than there were a year ago. And that is exacerbating the housing shortage in the US. What happened is that COVID forced government agency staff to work from home. But approvals for new projects require collaboration among many agencies, which is harder when people are not in offices. So our industry is seeing months of delays and approvals impeding the, abilities, the ability of builders to get to market. Another challenge comes from the widespread material shortages. COVID has disrupted various supply chains in the US and around the world. And when you combine that with a surge in housing demand, the factories and suppliers cannot keep up. And so for example, lumber went into shortage last summer and actually tripled in price in three months. And that inflation in wood products added 10 to $20,000 to the cost of building a house. One good thing occurred in the housing labor markets. Before COVID, our industry had a huge labor shortage concern as fewer people were becoming plumbers, electricians, and carpenters. But due to the layoffs in the restaurant and travel industries, labor has shifted toward the construction industry, creating a big benefit for us. And just like there may be bubbles today in the stock market or Bitcoin or whatever, there's a lot of discussion whether we are in another housing bubble in the US. It's hard to know for sure, but some things are quite different this time. Looking back to the prior housing bubble, the mortgage market was a mess with a lot of fraud in the system. Today, mortgages are much more regulated and mortgage quality is excellent. During the prior housing bubble, there were tons of flippers in the market, buying houses and never intending to occupy them. That is not an issue today. There are some investors today, but they want to go to closing and rent out the houses as long-term investments. And the demographics are better today, as we likely have another good four to five years of the millennial buying wave. And although those factors are better this time, the real wild card that could cause pain is the mortgage rate. 94% of houses are purchased with financing, and a mortgage rate in the twos is fueling this buying frenzy. And so when rates go up, the market could experience a big economic shock. And I want to mention two other trends in the single family housing market. The first is domestic migration. So we are seeing increased numbers of households relocating. Basically, lots of people in the Northwest and mid, in the Northeast and Midwest are moving to the Southeast. And similarly, the bumper to bumper moving vans of people leaving California for Phoenix and Texas and Denver is significant. And a final trend in the market is the institutionalization of the single family rental market. Now, most people hear rentals and think about apartment buildings, but nearly half of rentals in the US are actually single family. And the owners of those homes are mostly people that inherited a house or moved out of a house and decided to rent it out. Now, single family houses were rarely owned by giant companies because they were much less efficient to lease out and maintain than apartment buildings. But that's changed with technology. Now you can make an appointment online to see a rental house. 
you hold your driver's license up to the Nest camera. You get a text with the entry code for the digital lock, and you self-tour. And then you fill out and sign the paperwork online, and you move in without ever seeing a human. And so technology has actually created a new investment segment for institutions. With the efficiencies from technology alongside the strong demand, billions of dollars are flowing into the single-family rental industry. And there are now public companies with tens of thousands of owned single-family homes. And the biggest trend is for entire neighborhoods to be built where none of the homes will be owned by individuals. And so just like the single-family for sale industry, the single-family for rent industry is also soaring. Steve, thank you. That's, that's incredible. Let's, let's go into that, your last point about companies owning whole neighborhoods, and it's 100% owned and by the company, and none of it's owned by the, uh, by the residents. Um, you mentioned to me that these, these new neighborhoods, where are they? Are they just outside the MSA? Is this a natural uh, urban sprawl? Is this in rural, uh, outside rural communities? And um, do, does every house look the same? What is the quality of the house? How are companies viewing this uh, differently than residents would choose in their own homes? Sure. I mean, when you think about purpose-built, build-for-rent neighborhoods, uh, you know, the term that's in the industry now is called horizontal apartments. And so instead of building a building with staircases and elevators and such, you're just building 250 single-family detached homes. Those homes look like any other neighborhood. They're in the suburbs or exurbs, just like any other neighborhood. Sometimes they're infill. A townhome community might have 50 or 100 townhomes near an urban core, but it's just all rental, whereas in the past that would always have been built uh, for, for sale. The quality is very similar. In fact, some of the neighborhoods I think are um, built to higher standards because the uh, investors or own, long-term owners, they actually are, are looking at this institutionally and thinking about the very long-term maintenance costs and are putting extra money into these things. Similarly, on the inside, um, one trend is you, won't, you often won't find any carpet in a built-for-rent unit because carpet wears out, and so you'll have uh, hard surfaces throughout both levels or the entirety of the house. So they're, they're similar but a little bit different, but they're, I wouldn't say they're built more affordably. They're actually built to very high standards. And... You know, you mentioned to me previously that uh, the houses look very similar next to each other. Um, when you think about beauty and aesthetics of a residential community, uh, how do we feel when every house looks exactly like your neighbors? Uh, it feels a little bit like Levittown as compared to, say, Roslyn or uh, Glencoe, Illinois, where the town I grew up in, which had uh, large variants in architectural styles. Um, how do we feel about having horizontal apartments when they're all the same. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you think to the first scene of the, uh, the cartoon show, The Simpsons, where they show the Springfield and, and all the houses are exactly alike from the view from the hill, and that's kind of what you're talking about. And our industry, both in the for sale and the for rent side of it, actually does try to differentiate the look of the houses. And so many jurisdictions have what are called monotony codes, which means you can't have houses that look the same across the street, next door, diagonally. And generally, those types of communities do differentiate on the outside. Um, so sometimes you could find whole communities that are quite similar of look on the exteriors, but more often you would see variance, uh, variability. 
And so inside they're exactly the same, it's just the outside has some small architectural differences. Is that what you're saying? That That is what I'm saying. Often the, the houses would be the same on the inside or very, very similar, but on the outside they'd be built to look different. And that that's actually the same of both the for sale and the for rent industries. Um, you also mentioned that um, 94% of your buyers are purchased with mortgages. Um, and every every one of those... Well, a great majority of the buyers are making that rent versus buy decision. Um, and with very low interest rates, um, buying beats renting. Um, what do you think, um, when interest rates start to bump up a little bit, how are these choices going to be made? Um, and will that put a lot of pressure on the, pr the, the price of, of the homes? Or will that just end the, the frenzy and take it back to a more normal market? Uh, that is the multi-million dollar question and so you know with rates in the twos it's just it's in, it's really abnormal and so if you get if you get a if you have a two and seven five rate today and you go to 4.75 in a year you know on a on a three hundred and fifty thousand dollar house you're going to add about four hundred dollars a month and so what happens is there's a huge slice of the population that can no longer afford it and so people that want to buy will not be able to or we'll have to buy further away, lower price points, or, or really will just be uh, forced to rent for a longer period of time. And so how that flows through the economics of the housing system, if it's really severe, uh, if it's a, a large move very quickly, it will create a shock to the single-family system, and it'll, it'll have some impact on prices. If it's gradual over time, it'll just kind of get absorbed by the market, and uh, it'll 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 offset the surge and the, the bullishness right now, but it won't have the kind of collapse as a quick move. A quick move would be very hard on the system. So tell me a little bit about, as you think about um, the future of where you're going to build these homes, um, has there been a, a trend away from high-density uh, cities towards more rural communities as as employees now may have to go to the office maybe only once or twice a week, uh, they can radically change their um, decision of, of, of where, to, to where to live. I mean, one of the most interesting uh, economic equations I heard about real estate is that when uh, you increase uh, the, the distance, it's, it's, it's a radius squared, like a circle, uh, are the number of homes that, or a number of amount of land that's available as you as you move away from the center city? Um, do you expect to see an expansion in rural new home communities with I'll call it um, very low uh, employee movement to the cities from time to time, and be, and with that land being so much cheaper, uh, will that facilitate um, a new a new way of living? Yeah, it's, there's a lot to unpack in that question, and, and let me hit a couple aspects of it as relates to housing. So, you know, over the last 30 to 50 years, there's a concept called drive to qualify, where as you keep driving farther from the core, the prices go down as land becomes more affordable, and people will just drive however long it takes until they can qualify to buy a house. And so, as you mentioned, those concentric circles, as you go farther and farther out, the area inside them gets bigger because the circles are bigger and you can just house a lot more people. And then over the last 10 to 20 years, there was uh, kind of a pushback against that, both from governments and taxpayers, but also you had the baby boomer generation wanting to return to cities and 
all the things that were happening in the revitalization of urban areas. And so the trend started to be of people moving back to downtowns and these downtown booms all across the U.S. What is the wild card right now is with COVID um, has some of the appeal of downtown. It certainly shifted during the past 12 months. Will that shift continue for another year? Will that shift continue indefinitely around places like in places like San Francisco or New York City or Chicago? Uh, alongside of that pandemic cause shift is the acceleration of the ability to work remotely, not just technologically, but as a something allowed by almost all companies now. Will that enable people to live farther out, as you suggested? Uh, because they're only coming, they may only be driving into an office once or twice a week. Uh, traffic will be very different. So commuting times used to be a really big factor in housing decisions. But the commute that used to be an hour to go 18 miles, uh, you might now be able to live 50 miles and commute in that hour. And so it opens up a lot of other areas where people can live. And kind of the last piece of that is rural or uh, exurban, where um, if you're only going to work once a week you can, and you have a, a strong Internet connection, you really can choose to live in a different place um, in a city that wouldn't be considered anywhere part of an existing metro area. Um, could become both appealing and available for somebody to live in a much nicer house at a, at a much lower price point. And so there's a there's a lot that's in flux with how how this whole thing will work out with housing choice. How much cheaper are we talking about? Uh, well, I mean, I live in an area where it's very common for houses to sell for 800. The average price in my county is about $900,000. Um, I sell houses in the southeast in the 100s, and so um, it doesn't. You know, if you if you drive a, an hour from where I am, you can buy a nice house in the threes, and an hour and a half, you could get to the twos. And so it's a huge change from urban areas to more rural, and that's meaningful for for the amount of house that. I mean, the, I think the the way to think about the economics of it is that, you know, the the median household income for a two-person household, $77,000, right? And so you talk about 500000 to 400000 to 300000 and what the payment is. It's a meaningful amount of money for that household. And so it, it really matters, uh, particularly with people who are just trying to buy a house. That sounds for sure. Um, okay. I think with that, we're going to move on to um, our next speaker, uh, Robert Pondicio, who will discuss uh, his book, uh, How the Other Half Learns, Equality, Excellence, and the Battle Over School Choice. Robert, please go ahead. Thank you, Larry. Uh, shortly before my book was published, I wrote a piece for an education news website with the title, Here's My New Book, I Hope You Hate It. And I meant it earnestly. It's, it's a bit of a Rorschach test, whether you are a fan or a foe of charter schools, of Success Academy, or its controversial founder, Eva Moskowitz, you'll find evidence in my book that will support those views. But my hope was that readers would also see things that challenge those views and made them a bit uncomfortable. Uh, let's start. Charter schools are not private schools. They are publicly funded, but privately managed. The charter school movement is only about 30 years old. Its greatest successes have been urban charter school networks, including names you might know like KIPP, Achievement First, Yes Prep, and others. But the most successful is Success Academy. Uh, here's some facts. Since its founding in 2006, 
Eva Moskowitz, the founder of, C- of Success Academy, has grown her organization from a single school in Harlem in New York City to 47 schools, educating 17,000 children in every borough of New York except Staten Island. That rapid growth has not diminished quality in any measurable way. Two years ago, there were 37 Success Academy schools with children in testing grades, that's grades three through eight. Among those schools, listen carefully, the lowest performing had 85% of its students pass the New York State English Language Arts Test. Yes, that was the worst one. The school with the lowest pass rate in math had 92% of its students at or above proficiency. And let me not bury the lead. More than 90% of Success Academy students are children of color, mostly black and Hispanic, mostly low income, living in neighborhoods where public schools have failed families for generations. About one in three black and Hispanic children in New York City, by contrast, test at or above grade level in math and reading. So the level of quality and the consistency is astonishing and quite literally without precedent. There is no such thing as a bad Success Academy school based on test scores. But it's incorrect to say that Success Academy gets these results with a random assortment of kids and families. So spoiler alert, here's the news that emerged from my book. Charter schools, as you may know, admit students by lottery. But at Success, winning a seat in the lottery is just the first step in their enrollment process. There are several small but non-trivial hoops that parents must jump through in between the lottery in April and the start of the school year in August. First, there's a welcome meeting at which Success Academy staff, to their credit, could not be more clear or more emphatic about where they st- what they stand for and what they will not stand for. Success makes significant demands on parents to read with their children every night, to support safe and orderly schools, and to understand that kids, yes, even kindergartners, will be suspended if they break school rules. Parents are expected to be 100% on board with Success Academy's so-called culture demands. That means things like long days, half days on Wednesday for teacher professional development, no transportation, no after-school programming. All of this is non-negotiable. As one staffer told parents, this isn't Burger King. You can't have it your way, and they mean it. So next, families have to confirm their interest via email. Then comes a uniform fitting. Then there's a dress rehearsal where new students meet their teachers and learn classroom routines. So parents have to be motivated or curious enough about alternatives to zoned neighborhood schools to at least enter the charter school lottery in the first place. Then success makes them vote with their feet, affirming and reaffirming their commitment repeatedly over the summer. The result is that the families whose children end up matriculating at Success Academy are not there by happenstance or by accident. They are either buying what Eva Moskowitz is selling or they're desperate enough to sign up and go along with the program. Moreover, they have demonstrated a base level of competence, of organizational skill, and the bandwidth to keep up with the school's demands, to show up and show up and show up again. So all of this appears to favor a disproportionate number of two-parent families who are employed, stable, religious, and who value the very thing that critics of Success Academy deride, a safe, strict, and orderly school environment. Now, critics look at this and say, well, this is creaming, this is cherry-picking, but it's not the smoking gun they imagine. For starters, Success Academy gets better results with self-selected families 
then New York City's gifted and talented programs get with kids who really are handpicked and better test scores than wealthy suburban schools get with the children of parents in multi-million dollar homes whose property taxes might as well be private school tuition. So is there something wrong with offering opportunity to families whose principal assets are ambition and a willingness to sacrifice and work hard for their children? Well, for some, there is something wrong with that. We think it's unfair. And bluntly, it is unfair. What about the other children? But unfair to whom? To parents who want their children to go to school with the children of similarly engaged and ambitious parents? Or unfair to those left behind when neighborhood schools suffer an exodus of those families? What success is demonstrating, what my book, I think, demonstrates to my mind, is what is possible when you allow families to self-select into high-functioning schools and when every adult in a child's life is pulling in the same direction. But the argument cannot be, well, this proves that we can do this with virtually any child, nor can we impose this brand of schooling on the unwilling. It would not be appropriate. But rather than try to explain these things away, to insist that we can do this for every child, or conversely insist that unless we can do it for every child, we shouldn't do it for any child, I wish we would lean into these differences, however much it varies from the standard narratives in education, however uncomfortable it makes us, however complicated the ramifications. So let Eva be Eva. Let families who are eagerly buying what they're selling have success academy, let's have more of them. But let's stop comparing them to neighborhood schools. They're different, and that's why they're excellent. So if success academy is a poor man's private school, that's okay. There's a role for that in New York City, in this country, that hasn't been filled really since the heyday of Catholic schools. Frankly, I think most Americans would probably say, well, it's about time. All right, it's time for me to start asking you some questions about what you just said. Why do you think there is this um, focus on fairness? Um, why did that come front and center? Is that just part of, um, you know, this new mindset that uh, we have we have to help the most poor or the most uh, downtrodden? We don't usually ask that question comparing suburban schools, for example. No, I think, and that's why the title of my book was was how the other half learned. It's it's an ironic title, which uh, some folks uh, may recall or, or or does recall the Jacob Rees book um, from a, over a century ago, How the Other Half Lives. Um, I, I, we, we, the things that Success Academy families are striving to get are frankly the things that affluent families take for granted. Uh, it is simply not controversial if uh, you're local, if you, if you are a person of means, if you are typically white in this country and, and your local school is, is not up to snuff, it is completely uncontroversial for you to pick up and move to the suburbs uh, where you'll get as much school as you can for as much house as you can get, so to speak. Um, but when somebody comes along and tries to do this for low-income kids of color, well, suddenly it's a problem. Um, and these issues of unfairness and, and inequities are, are, are raised. And I think there is an article of faith in contemporary education um, that we can fix this. And, and this almost doesn't matter where you are in the political spectrum. If you're to the left, you assume that if we just have enough, uh, you know, if we, how many times have you heard this phrase? If we just fully fund schools, then every school can be this. Um, and then on the right, well, if we just inject competition into the system through charter schools, through vouchers, et cetera, then schools will have an, an incentive to improve. 
but it is almost the monomaniacal focus of both white and left uh, fixing, fixing urban schools in particular and closing the so-called achievement gap. That has been, um, I, I, don't, I think I'm oversimplifying, but not hugely to say it has been the almost exclusive focus of education policy for the last 25 years. Let's get into the, uh, why do you think um, Success Academy is successful? You know, you've mentioned well, some of the, the aspects about the uniforms and the, uh, the test prep uh, and the buy-in appearance uh, in the reading to the children. Um, if you broke down and, and thought of like the, the there's certain things that Eva is doing that is scalable and there's certain things that aren't. Um, and if you had a, your top 10 list, which she's doing right, uh, what would you say? It, or do you think it's impossible to look at it that way holistically if you don't have a safe environment, it just won't work? Or if you don't have parent buy-in, it won't work? Or if you don't have a uniform, yeah. it won't work? I think you've just answered the question, which is, um, you know, it, 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 it's a very – it's a facile thing to say, well, what's, what's the answer here? You know, what's, uh, and I don't mean that your question is facile, but that's, that's just what we do all the time in this work is say, what's, you know, what's the single most important thing? And I don't think there is a single most important thing. It's, it's a cocktail. It's a suite of things. Um, you, you have to have somebody, not me, said uh, you don't have, it's not, it's 101% solutions, not one 100% solution. So uh, the, the, the one thing I will say, uh, which was kind of an epiphany to me in writing this book um, I'm a curriculum and instruction guy. My, my strange role in education policy is where most people who do what I do are focusing on structures and funding and things like chartering and teacher quality and testing. I'm, I'm the guy who says, hey, can we talk about what the kids do all day? Um, education policy tends to be somewhat indifferent to classroom practice. That tends to be my, my exclusive focus. Um, so it's, it's, this is a long way of saying that um, you, know, you, you have to have – well, I, I walked into the Success Academy assuming I was going to write about practice because that's what I write about generally, and I surprised myself by writing a book that ended up being almost exclusively about school culture. And that's the function of those um, – I, I want to call it winnowing because I don't want to leave the impression that what makes success work is, is that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a you know, cleaning or selection engine. Uh, but it creates the conditions when you have every parent and you know, every adult in a child's life heading in the same direction, it creates that coherent, cohesive, high expectations uh, uh, um, environment that's just really, really hard to, to just drop into to, to schools uh, just anywhere. Hey, um, I have a, this is uh, Dan Gelber. Uh, I have a question for you, uh, Rob. So in your studies, you know, my mother was a teacher for about 40 years, and she always said uh, back to school night at the beginning of the school year, that percentage of participation was usually the best indicator of what kind of year she'd have because there'd be less, but, you know, there'd be greater participation with parents, there'd be less discipline issues, and kids would tend to do their homework on time. So what happens when the self-selected group of children go what happens to the schools where they come from if there's any appreciable amount coming from one of the schools, others, yeah. if it's a great amount? So I guess my question is, how does the other half, other half learn yeah. uh, at that it's, point? It is, it is a fantastic question, and, and it's the one that I'm, I will be quite candid with you, and I think we're dishonest about. Uh, those of us in education policy love to produce these, these studies that show that, you know, that it charters and competition. And look, I'm a charter uh, and choice guy. Um, I, I teach in a charter school. 
um, there, there's this tendency to want to say that it creates a you know, rising tide that lifts all boats. But what, what inspired me to, to, to a bit of a backstory here, I spent uh, a year mostly in a school that was literally across the street from the school where I was a student teacher and in the same neighborhood where I was a fifth grade teacher at the lowest performing public school in the South Bronx for five years. Um, so I know that the, the, the right answer, and I'm making air quotes, the right answer is that rising tide, but if, it, it just strains my credulity. In other words, if I think back on my classroom experience and think, okay, who were the kids that I had who were most likely, would have been most likely, there was no success academy, to have left my, my school and classroom to, to become a success academy student, it's just fanciful to suggest that that would not have a deleterious effect on, on, on my class and my school. But the key thing here is, is we simply don't have the right to treat other people's children as public resources. In other words, it's quite common to a, a complaint against success academies to say, well, you're, you're, you're robbing the system of the resource that is this motivated child and this motivated family. Well, to be blunt, nobody tells me that my child is a public resource when I move to the burbs. Nobody tells me my child is a public resource when um, I enroll her in a private school or a Catholic school. So it just seems uh, perverse almost to, 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 to have that mindset and attach it to black and brown families, low-income families, and to them only. You know, sometimes just to follow that up, um, we used to have, or there currently may be, uh, gifted programs in suburban schools. And in those gifted programs, we lift out the best students and separate them as well. Um, do we face that same sort of hostility when we do that? And others think that we need to have these gifted programs if we're going to have new ideas and productivity. We really need to invest uh, more money in gifted programs than otherwise. Yeah, this is a, is a large controversy. It's not my area of expertise, but I, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners know that in New York City and elsewhere, this is um, a bit of a third rail right now. Uh, Mayor de Blasio and, and Chancellor Carranza in New York City have been um, trying to dismantle uh, one of the better uh, systems in the country in terms of student outcomes, the so-called specialized high schools, you know, the, the familiar names like Stuyvesant High and Bronx Science, which are test-in schools. And, and because of this general feeling that's at loose at the land, that, that, that we are now, um, that these are unequitable, um, there, there is a, a large movement to dismantle these kinds of schools that have historically been real engines of opportunity for, for low and moderate income people. Uh, I mean, I have, I have personal opinions about that, but I, I don't really have data uh, to, to, to suggest uh, whether or not they are effective or not. I mean, I, you know, in other words, is it a selection are the kids who are going to go to those schools, would they have done well anyway because they are uh, you know, axiomatically bright and good test takers? Um, I, I just don't have the depth of knowledge on the research to comment intelligently on that. Okay, so going down a different tact. Um, last week we had Bill Fischel speak on, on what happens next, and I asked him a question about um, the removal of College Board subject tests uh, that mm -hmm. those have been discontinued. And Bill mentioned that um, he doesn't like it when we teach for the test and he would prefer um, more creative solutions. Um, I want to break that into like two questions. One is, is that when in reading your book, you highlight that uh, test prep is a major component of their, how they think about their education. That's number one. And number two is um, you also, uh, they, we split up. Uh, there's a sense that in these suburban schools, 
um, the teacher can be very creative about their curriculum choice. But here at um, Success Academy, they kind of di diverge the, the role. There's one group that does curriculum uh, and there's another group that does the teaching. How do you think about that as well in the context yeah. of uh, – go ahead. Well, that, that's, that's the one we, we, we uh, kind of dance around the question of how much of this is, is scalable. And if you ask Eva Moskowitz, she will give you the answer to all of it. My answer is, is less than that, but not none of it. And, and one of the things that I think is and should be scalable is exactly what you just described, Larry. Um, I've written about this as recently as two days ago. Um, and this may be a subject almost for another time, but, but there is an extraordinary inefficiency at the heart of American education where we expect and there have been studies from RAND and elsewhere that show that, that the average American teacher um, spends an ungodly amount of time um, uh, either creating or curating, um, uh, finding materials to teach. You know, in other words, the expectation I think that most of us has is, well, there's a curriculum, right? Well, not really. And, and that time that is spent finding materials to teach is time that is not spent on studying student work, preparing to teach a lesson, building relationships with children and families, on and on and on. So it's not that that customization is necessarily a bad thing. It's just the opportunity cost is profound. So if there's one change that I think uh, that we can learn from Success Academy and that I would strongly encourage, it's that we need to, to rethink that, that expectation. I've written about this over the years and pointed out that we just – literally make the job of a teacher too hard for, for, for mere mortals. We expect them to be both uh, expert curriculum deliverers, pedagogues, if you will, and, and curriculum designers. And you know, my, my standard line is that nobody thinks that Yo-Yo Ma is, is a second-rate musician because he did not write the Brandenburg Concertos. Uh, but we have this expectation that teachers should be both playwright and actor, both musician and, and composer. And, it's, and it's, uh, it, it just comes at an enormous cost in terms of efficiency. And that's fantastic. And what um, what about that, that first part of the question about the fact that, that at Success Academy there is a lot of teaching for the test? Um, I guess one yeah. of the concerns about teaching for the test is that sort of uh, limits the education. It doesn't. Um, it's not. A, it's not. A, it, it, it may not be as fun. But when you were writing in, in the book, um, the teachers seemed to make it extremely fun and get, gave them challenges that, although it helped them in the test, it would help them in anything in terms of how to read, how to, how to think about a word they don't know in context. Um, is teaching for the test, which has got a horrible reputation uh, sure among is. the education establishment, uh, are they just wrong on that? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, I say this all the time. I've got a complicated relationship with standardized tests. Uh, I, I don't, I, you know, I, nobody should sentimentalize the time before we had testing uh, when we could just pretend that all the children were above average, as Garrison Keillor said. Um, now we know where the gaps are and we can't ignore them. I mean, the moral authority of the entire education reform movement comes from acknowledgement of those gaps, and that means tests. Um, but it would be also naive, I think, to 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 blind oneself to the downstream effects of this, you know, and, and I'll bet almost everybody has seen this, that they have school-aged children in their own children's schools, rich and poor, um, teaching to the test, the obsession with test prep, uh, the concern over those, those annual state tests. So I, I, it, on the one hand, you know, I, I should have, and I think I wrote this in the book exactly this way, you know, seeing that extreme test prep is the type of thing that normally rubs me the wrong way, but it didn't rub me the wrong way at Success Academy, and I had to ask myself why not. And, and, and the answer that I gave to myself, um, others can make up their own mind, 
is, look, if you are a low-income black or brown child in America, you have absolutely no reason, historically, to expect that you're going to have a, a relationship that's positive with a thing called a school. But now you find yourself in a thing called Success Academy, where your teachers are telling you that there's this thing called the test, and it's hard, not easy, but they're going to prepare you for it, give you attack strategies, on and on and on, um, test prep you in an inch of your life. And then, uh, lo and behold, the test comes and you get a four, the highest possible score, or a three. But more to the point, all of your friends do too. Now, suddenly, you know, put yourself in the mind of that child who goes home thinking something very different about a place called school. They go home thinking, hey, I'm good at this. And, and it's not just my teacher and my mom who says so. It's the state of New York and this piece of paper that says so. So I'm willing to bet that that, that kind of game-changing relationship with the thing called the school, even though I don't necessarily love test prep, I do love the idea of having a school and a school community where every child, particularly the ones who are historically least likely to have this relationship, go home thinking, this has taken me someplace. I think that's valuable. And, and we don't know this, but my, my, my bet, my hunch, is that that's going to pay dividends in the long term. I want to go back to Dan Gelber's question to you uh, and ask it in a different way. Um, you have two students. One is a high achiever, one is a low achiever. And there's an assumption um, uh, that Dan's mother was telling you that is that if you have that high achiever next to the lower achiever, it will have a positive impact on the low achiever. But I wonder, um, having that low achiever next to the high achiever, how much does that bring down the high achiever? Um, it can't just be one way. How do we think about uh, I'll call it bad influence, bad behavior, uh, bad culture, bad you know drug use, whatever those things that are you know that kid is trouble. How do yeah. that kid doesn't well, make the, this room safe? The, the 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 technocratic answer is is what I said before, which is that you know that that effect of the rising tide that lifts all boats. Um, as a teacher, as a writer, I'm not persuaded by it um, because also I think. All of us who have children in school, who have been in school, realize that, um, you know, we, we don't just send our children to school to get good scores on standardized tests. So there's more uh, going on in a school. There's peer effects. There's, there's you know, a, any number of, of other factors that matter to us as, uh, as much or more than whether they get that three or four on a, on a, on a reading test. So, you know, we are concerned about the, 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 the environment in which our kid goes to school. You know, my long answer to, to the question, Larry, I mean, you know, there, there's, uh, there's a, a figure in this book who was not a student at Success Academy, but, you know, I, I say that she haunts the book like a ghost, and she was a fifth-grade uh, student of mine when I was a teacher um, a few blocks away at PS277. There was this girl named Tiffany who, in retrospect, was, was the Success Academy kid from Central Casting. I mean, she, she came to school every day in a school uniform. She never missed a day of school. She never missed an assignment. Um, the way I describe her in this book is she was a double three, meaning she was solidly on grade level in a school where almost nobody was, was um, a double three. And, and you know, the, 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 the big moment for me in my trajectory in my career was mentioning to my special ed supervisor one day, like, look, I'm not doing anything for this girl, this girl Tiffany. And she said, and the, the verbatim quote was, well, she's not your problem, um, which is such a hell of a thing to say about anybody's child, right? In other words, what she was trying to say, give, I assume giving me good advice is, you know, Pondicia, you've got, you know, ones and twos. Why are you worried about this kid who's delivering the results that you need? Um, well, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm haunted, frankly, to this day 
thinking, what if um, this girl had gone to, you know, my daughter's uh, very nice private school in the Upper East Side of Manhattan? What if there had been a success academy? Um, she went, uh, ended up moving to Pennsylvania, graduating from a perfectly fine state university, um, and she's, you know, working in a marketing position for a, a dot-com, I believe, in Pennsylvania. I'm still in touch with her. Um, so, you know, and this is the point I make in the book, we would look at that data point and say, well, we did right by her. You know, we, we, um, she graduated. Her chances of graduating uh, as a single child of a low-income person of color in the South Bronx were less than 10%, so it worked. And, and but then I say, well, wait a minute. Did, 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 you, did, did you not hear what I said? I was told to ignore her. Um, so she, she, you know, she got what she got, not because of us, but in spite of us. Uh, so this to me is the, I'm not answering your question, Larry, because I don't think there is an answer to that question. Uh, you know, the, the, the large point is we don't make these decisions or don't allow these decisions to be made for our own children if we are um, white and affluent. But we are perfectly comfortable making these, children, uh, these decisions for other people's children. And when I say, here's my new book, I hope you hate it, I, I hope people hate wrestling with that question because it's, it's essential that we do so. You know, Robert, you started, um, you asked Derek Lowe a question about when we can open schools, and the issue was uh, safety, safety for the teacher, safety for the student. Um, and I think safety is even more important than good test scores. I think a parent that feels oh, no his question. child or her child isn't safe, you know, screw it. I don't care what he learns in history. Um, no question. And I think safety is what might have driven the original white flight. Uh, in the 1960s and why, um, you know, my, my father went to a school in West Rogers Park and why I went to uh, Nutra High School in the suburbs. I think it was safety. And so is the Success Academy successful because it is a safe environment? They don't need to worry about that. Is that a huge factor uh, in the buy-in? I, th I think that's a factor. It's an, it's an understood but not necessarily well-documented uh, factor in charter schools, urban charter schools in general. Um, this is, again, anecdote. I don't want to present, or pretend that I've got data on this, but anecdotally, it is something of an open secret that charter is a synonym for safe, at least in New York City and I assume elsewhere. So, so the point I make here is that you know, when we make these, I think, rather facile comparisons between neighborhood schools and charter schools and then success academy, you almost have to think of this um, you know, in social, in social science, we do, you know, demographically matched research. And my point is, like, well, no, you have to consider this, to use a marketing term, psychographic. So, you know, imagine three, three mothers. There's the one who just sends the, the kid to the school, the zone school down the street, because that's where we go. There's the one who's concerned about safety and says, what's a charter school? I want one of those. And then there's the next level up, which is, no, I don't want my kid in just a safe charter school. I want CHIP or Success Academy or Democracy Prep, where I teach sometimes. Um, so, you know, those, those, it, it's, all three of those parents may be demographically matched, but they are not psychographically matched. Uh, Success Academy seems to, to be a magnet, um, and, and through these various mechanisms I discussed, uh, you know, that, that's kind of a soft enforcement or soft sorting mechanism to ensure that they are getting families with, with the, 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 the most buy-in. So it's, you know, this is, I think, another mistake we make in the education policy world is we have this kind of attitude that, you know, urban neighborhoods are, you know, they're, 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 they're undifferentiated masses of, of, of poor and fortunate people, and, and we're either, you know, we, we have to, to save them, so to speak. Uh, we, we um, I'm going to be careful here. I think we, we, we undervalue the amount of parental efficacy that is there for us to tap. 
um, you know, say what you will about Eva Moskowitz, uh, you know, she, she does not in, engage in the soft bigotry of low expectations. She uh, absolutely expects um, you know, quite a lot of parents and gets it. Bringing uh, my last question for you on parents, um, you know, it sounds like when you said uh, this isn't Burger King, uh, you can't have it your way. I think, um, I assume there's like no PTA or an ability for parents yeah, to kind of weigh in to change the uh, way most school districts work. Um, and that, you know, Eva is offering this, uh, you know, quarter pounder with cheese, period. <laughs> um, or you, I, should, I should probably say a, a double whopper. Um, you know, what, what is the role of parents in the changing or influencing uh, the educational process, albeit curriculum, uniform choice, uh, methods of teaching, or is this really, look, take it or leave it. We'd love you to play. If you don't like it, take a hike. Well, what's interesting, I, I think there's, there's no discernible role that I can determine in terms of you know, curriculum and pedagogy and school culture and whatnot. It, it is what it is. Uh, but they do, uh, interestingly, um, recruit parents to be uh, political advocates. Um, you know, Moskowitz is famous in New York for, for bringing thousands of parents you know, to Albany on charter school lobbying day, for, for marshalling tens of thousands of parents to march across the Brooklyn Bridge uh, you know, to, to open more charter schools. Um, so she, you know, she is a, you know, a, an unusually well-organized woman, um, you know, an a very dynamic leader, and inspires uh, um, you know, either through loyalty or fear uh, she, she gets parents to turn out and advocate for, for, uh, for, for their own schools and for opening others. And this, by the way, is something else that is made quite clear to parents from the get-go, is that is, that is an expectation, uh, that, that you will be a participant in these, in these you know, public marches mm -hmm. uh, to help grow this movement, not just in Success Academy, but for, for, for charter schools in general in New York. Thank you. Okay, we now move on to our final speaker, Alan Auerbach. Uh, Alan is a professor of economics and law at UC Berkeley, and he'll be discussing fiscal policy. Go ahead, Alan. Thanks very much, Larry. Let me start with some big numbers. In uh, fiscal year 2020, which uh, for the federal government ended on September 30th, the U.S. federal budget deficit was $3.1 trillion. That's about 15% of GDP. If you want to go back to a historical year when it, the deficit was that big, you'd have to go to a period during World War II. The debt held by the public at the end of the year was about one year's GDP. This year, based on legislation so far, and not including the, the pending legislation proposed by the Biden administration, the deficit's on track to be over 10% of GDP. And again, you'd have to go back to the period during World War II to find a deficit that big. And at the end of this fiscal year, it will have a debt to GDP ratio in the neighborhood of the highest we've ever experienced, which was at the end of World War II. So how does this affect uh, uh, economic conditions and how does it shape our policies to deal with the ongoing pandemic? Uh, in particular, should we pass a $1.9 trillion uh, fiscal package as is being proposed? Uh, there's two key things that should shape uh, our thinking about this. One is that this is a very different recession uh, than what we've been accustomed to. Uh, and the other is that uh, interest rates, and particularly the interest rates at which the government borrows, are very, very low right now. So on the first point, uh, with the drop in economic activity in the second quarter of 2020, uh, as a result of the pandemic, 
we would normally have wanted a big fiscal, fiscal stimulus uh, to help bring the economy back. And we had one with the CARES Act and the trillions of dollars. But uh, in thinking about it, particularly retrospectively, the problem wasn't just a lack of demand caused of income loss, the kind of, of income loss we had in the previous uh, recession during the global financial crisis, but an unwillingness to spend on certain items, such as in-person services. Um, so we had many th uh, components to the CARES legislation, but one of the important ones was just government transfer payments to household, checks for $1,200 and so forth. And one of the things that we observed was that there was a huge spike in personal saving uh, and less new spending than one might have expected during a recession. We did have a strong recovery, uh, but it wasn't just due to the uh, demand stimulus coming from the CARES Act, or it wasn't even primarily due to that. It was due to other factors uh, that were at work in the economy already. Um, now, with a big recession, uh, you would have expected a huge increase in state and local budget deficits, leading to big employment cuts and a further drag on the economy, such as we saw in the global financial crisis. But again, the uh, uh, things are different this time. First of all, the CARES Act did have big uh, transfers to state and local governments to help cushion the blow to their budgets. Um, also, the taxes that these governments collect are paid largely by people who were unaffected economically, uh, unlike in previous recessions. And this is these two things together really cushion losses so far. So things haven't been as bad as predicted. For example, California, Governor Newsom at the end of, uh, I think in December, discovered a $15 billion windfall uh, that helped uh, avoid budget cuts that he was other, uh, otherwise planning to make. Um, now, moving to the second point, uh, that interest rates are very, very low. One would have expected a huge jump in the path of uh, federal debt, not just this year, um, but in the next 10, 20, 30 years, uh, due not only to the spending that we've already uh, done, but the uh, debt service on that additional debt that we've accumulated. But if one looks at projections now, uh, which are in my paper, relative to January, they, they show that, uh, say, 10 years from now, the amount of federal debt that we'll have is actually not that much higher than was predicted before the pandemic. Um, because the debt service cost, the interest that the government's paying on the national debt, uh, it was low then, but it's even lower now uh, than we'd expected. And so that has helped lessen the fiscal burden of the debt that we've accumulated. So what do these uh, factors, the, very, the difference in the recession uh, and that the interest rates are very low, uh, uh, tell us about what we should be doing now, what the desirable path is for fiscal policy? Um, first, concerning state and local governments, they're not as desperate uh, as we expected them to be, given this, the depth of the recession. But they may need more help in the coming months, depending on the speed of recovery. And indeed, we just had some uh, negative news on this call, I think, about uh, given uh, 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 variants uh, of COVID-19, uh, that it, things may take longer than we might have thought a couple of months ago. Uh, in addition, the federal the debt trajectory, even with low interest rates, is bad if one looks far enough out. And that's largely due not just to the very high level of debt, but also to unsustainable entitlement spending that's, that's built in, given the way the programs work. And it's even worse if you, if you incorporate realistic spending and taxes rather than what's already in law, such as, for example, uh, another uh, pandemic uh, spending package is now being uh, uh, 
as now being proposed. Another thing to keep in mind is that with low interest rates, but a very high level of debt relative to GDP, it doesn't take much of a rise in interest rates uh, to increase debt service load substantially. With a debt to GDP ratio of one, as we have now, a one percentage point increase in interest rates means one percent of GDP more uh, in debt service on an annual basis. Um, and so that means we have to be careful about assuming uh, low interest rates uh, to continue. Also, in terms of what we should pass, we need to keep in mind the evidence from the spring about what happened to tr the payments that were made to households going into personal saving. And we've had additional evidence on that from the $600 payments uh, to individuals uh, that were adopted in, in December. Uh, uh, preliminary evidence suggests that particularly for households with uh, higher, uh, middle to higher incomes, uh, a lot of that was saved as well. And so it, uh, we need to uh, keep, uh, not think of this as, as borrowing as providing free money uh, because of what might happen to interest rates and the high debt levels already and coming. And we also need to shape policies uh, to meet the current circumstances, which again, are not like those of a normal recession. Thanks, Alan. Um, your focus um, with interest rates right at the center. Um, you know, ironically, this interest rate is really a function of the Fed policy. And, you know, we heard Steve uh, earlier speak about how low interest rates has turned the residential uh, single-family home market into a frenzy. Um, we also have it turning the stock market, our equity markets, and our bond markets into a frenzy, and those have propped up asset values, which we can tax with capital gains, et cetera. Um, but I don't know if this is sustainable. I don't remember in your class saying we can have the Fed keep long-term interest rates at incredibly low levels, and therefore we can pay for all our entitlements and have a booming stock market go up every year. I think you would have said there's a problem to doing that, and we have to pay the piper for that. So what is, what is the problem with keeping interest rates abnormally low? Well, you've mentioned one potential problem, which is bubbles, asset bubbles. Um, and uh, this also happened during the financial crisis. Uh, there was concern when the Fed uh, embarked on its very low interest rate policy. Some of the critics said you're creating uh, dangers in the form of uh, asset bubbles. And the Fed is generally taken the position, it took the position then, it's taken the position now that that's not their, uh, that's not their per, uh, problem, uh, you know, that, that their job is the real economy and, um, you know, we have to deal with asset, potential asset bubbles some other way. Um, I mean, one of the things that's different now than, say, 10 years ago is it's not just short-term interest rates that are low. You can go all the way out the, the yield curve to 30 years and you've still got extremely low interest rates. And that says, you know, we normally think about the Fed as controlling short-term interest rates primarily. It's true that with their balance sheet expansions uh, in the last decade, they've, they've uh, engaged in quantitative easing and buying assets uh, at the longer end of the yield curve. Uh, but we still, I think economists still think that what the Fed is mostly controlling is short-term interest rates, and it's, it's more fundamental factors that are affecting long-term interest rates. And the fact that long-term interest rates are so low right now seems to be sending a signal that uh, market participants believe uh, short-term interest rates are going to be low for a very long time. Uh, whether that is, uh, you know, a realistic uh, or rational perspective, I don't know, but it's certainly one that's commonly shared. 
you know, I've, I've told you before that I've always used you as the, as the grown-up in the room, that uh, Democrats have a desire to spend money and Republicans have a desire to cut taxes. Um, and you always said, look, you've got you to gotta, you know, lead a more balanced life. Um, if I had told you a year ago we were going to have a $3.1 trillion deficit and what were the long-term consequences, uh, you would have told me I would have thought that this is going to be have extreme negative consequences on our ability to meet our entitlement requirements in 30 to 50 years. Um, we had some powder, and that powder just got blown. Um, how do you think about the context, in context to what can we do, what, what are we going to be forced to do about our entitlements uh, sooner rather than later, given this 20, 15% a year and 10% We'll call it just an average two-year period of 25% GDP deficit. You know, the answer, uh, I'm sure if you ask Janet Yellen and if you ask the, the uh, government uh, officials in 2010 uh, what their answer was, their answer would have been, um, we should deal with that as soon as this crisis was o is over, but the crisis should take precedence. And I would give you the same answer, uh, if, uh, except that I don't really believe that's what, what's going to happen. Uh, and I didn't, I, you know, whatever uh, hope I would have had w would have been dashed the last time around. Um, in fact, I think it's going to be harder for us to deal with the uh, long-term long uh, budget problems uh, as a result of the pandemic, because uh, to, this, to the extent that uh, programs like Social Security and Medicare are popular, um, they have to have become more popular uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, the elder, it's true. I mean, the elderly have certainly suffered in terms of mortality rates from disease, but otherwise, they, they haven't suffered economically. Those of them that have money in the stock market have benefit, and, and even those of them who, do, who don't have guaranteed income uh, and medical care through Social Security and Medicare. Um, so uh, it, that group has done okay, but other groups in the population uh, looking ahead are thinking, you know, these are about the only certainties left in my life, and I don't want the government to take them away. Um, so I think it's going to be very difficult, leaving aside polarized and dysfunctional government, I think it's going to be very difficult uh, for, for government to come up with any solution, uh, which means I think the, the solution will end up being solution by crisis. That is, whenever it is that social, the Social Security Trust Fund runs out of money or the Medicare, one of the Medicare trust funds run, runs out of money, then they'll have to scramble to do something about it. But it'll be ad hoc. It won't be as uh, well thought out as, as a planned uh, restructuring of the programs, uh, but I, I think given our uh, both uh, uh, public demands as well as uh, po uh, the political uh, problems we have, I think that's what we're likely to see. You know, it's that Herbert Stein's famous quote, um, what can't go on forever won't. Um, I may be misquoting it, but that was the essence of it. Um, and so as we have this ever-expanding uh, entitlement program, you know, I I think we're, we're going to be making demands on, you know, children yet even unborn to pay for some of these things. Um, how do you think, like you just mentioned that the trust funds will have to go bankrupt first. Um, I think there's already one of the trust funds um, that deals with uh, dis disab uh, disabilities. Um, it went bust, but it was quickly paid out through general public uses. Don't you suspect that maybe the problem won't come from the trust fund itself being unable to pay, but maybe more from uh, the bond market and demands of very high credit yields uh, for the government? 
or near default that will, will be the primary factor? That's possible. Um, I mean, but that, uh, I, I guess my, my perspective was a hopeful one, which is that I'm, I'm hopeful, hoping that the Social Security Trust Fund, the, the, the main retirement trust fund, runs out of money before we have a general uh, uh, fiscal crisis. Um, and so we start dealing with it then. Um, it's, you're, you're right. We could end up papering things over. The Social Security Trust Fund could run out of money and, and we could opt for general revenue funding, which would solve the Social Security specific problem, not the overall problem. Um, and then just wait for the financial crisis to happen. Of course, one of the ironic things is whenever the world has a financial crisis, it becomes easier for the U.S. government to borrow because we're a, a relative safe haven. Even if we're having problems, other countries are having problems that are worse. And so um, as you think about what's happened here uh, um, with regards to massive budget deficits and imbalances, um, what are the lessons that have been learned? Is the lesson been learned that um, our next recession, we're going to just have a CARES Act of, you know, a trillion, two trillion, three trillion? Um, and if so, will that reckoning be even sooner? Like, you know, in, 2000, in 2008, we had a, a playbook. In 2020, we had a playbook. Um, is, this, is this new playbook just so problematic it's going to be catastrophic? I don't think so. Uh, I, and I think we have to think back to March 2020. You know, GDP on, on an annual basis, GDP in the second quarter of 2020 fell by over 30%. And it had already fallen by 5% in the first quarter. This was unprecedented. It didn't happen during the Depression that fast. And it, it's not happened any other time. Um, and so I think we were just frantic at that point And everybody was willing to throw money at, at the problem. And there was just consensus about that. That's not the way normal recessions happen. Even the financial crisis, which was a terrible recession, the worst one since the depression, um, unfolded slowly. It, took, it took, really took all of the year 2008 for us to get into the, a point where we realized how bad it was gonna be. Um, so no, I, I don't think this is a new playbook. I think, I, well, unless we're gonna have another pandemic, which I guess we might, uh, but but unless we we have an experience similar to this in terms of the sharp sharpness of the drop in GDP, I I think the responses will be more measured in the future. Well, I mean, you know, you spoke about what we did in March and April, um, but now we're talking about a proposed 1.9 trillion dollar package, which is even bigger when we have uh, maybe not certainty, but we have four vaccines in the pipeline. Um, do you think that, that that sort of package doesn't make sense? Is that imprudent? I, I, I think it doesn't make sense. I think having a package now makes sense. As I mentioned in my comments, I think states, uh, including through public health uh, provision, but in other, other respects as well, I think states could use more, more funding. I think there's no doubt that extension of unemployment benefits um, you know, we have a lot of people who, however, you know, not traditionally unemployed, but underemployed and, and finding it difficult to earn income. I, I think more targeted uh, assistance uh, to, biz to businesses as well. I think all of this makes sense. I, I think uh, unconditional transfers to a large fraction of the po uh, household population makes very little sense. And I really, and I think, frankly, from what I've seen among economists, I think there's a lot of uh, consensus about that. Uh, you know, I think this was an aspirational proposal um, coming at the beginning of an administration. 
Um, I, I've, I, my guess is we are going to have something, and I think it's going to be done by consensus, and it's going to be smaller and more targeted. We had um, Charles Goodhart on the program a couple weeks ago, and he was commenting on the Chinese uh, productivity creating a deflationary environment and these low interest rates. But he also said that he thought that the Chinese growth was a one-time phenomenon and that uh, it would not last forever. It won't last for very long, in fact. Um, do you think that the reason we're at these strange interest rate levels, both domestically and globally, is a function of that Chinese deflationary phenomena? And do you believe it's temporary? And once that uh, disappears and we return to, I'll call it, a more historically normal interest rate, that that's going to really blow up these budgets um, and you know, undermine uh, all the value, all the valuations in equities, bonds, and re real estate. Uh, there's there's been a discussion about the explanation for low interest rates that predates the the pandemic, because interest rates were very low before that. Sure. And uh, whether it whether it's productivity related, whether it's due to a savings glut, uh, uh, you know, there there are all kinds of uh, variants of the, the story, uh, and I don't really have a good answer except again to point to long-term interest rates. You know, if we think that long-term interest rates are telling us about expectations of future short-term rates, um, there's a strong consensus built into the market. Um, and there are a lot of people out there willing to lend at, at microscopic interest rates for 30 years, uh, which suggests that people aren't expecting this to turn around soon. Now, of course, that doesn't mean it won't turn around soon. And it also doesn't mean that our federal government should be, uh, you know, taking the, that mean expectation and, uh, and ignoring the possible tail risk, uh, you know, that, that could uh, uh, accompany it. Um, so I don't, have a, I don't have a crystal ball on this. I, I think prudence suggests that we should and, uh, expect at least a possibility that uh, interest rates will rise sharply in the, in the not too distant future and we should be have planning, you know, with that contingency in mind, but, but I, I don't know when it, that would happen. Okay. Um, that ends our regularly scheduled programming, and now we're going to head to the uh, notes of optimism. I'm going to ask each of the speakers in turn uh, to mention what they're optimistic about. I do this because um, on a show like today, uh, where we hear that COVID is about to have a rebirth, uh, and our economy might go into a, a new slowdown, and the vaccines will have limited efficacy, uh, we're back into that, I'll call it, more pessimistic tone. So what could we be optimistic about? I'm going to go around go around the room. And Dan, if you want to start, um, what are you optimistic about? You know, look, it, it, it's uh, impossible to say there's a, a silver lining when you have the level of suffering and, uh, and death that we've had over the last year from this, uh, this virus. But I will say this, that I think that, you know, we – We've extracted from this a lot of different things. And for me, I've seen my community, not just the healthcare workers, but the community itself sort of grow and appreciate things that it never even had to appreciate. And I think, and like any great challenge, it does elevate people. And it does, uh, some people it doesn't, but for, for, for me, I've seen so much good in people come out in so many ways. My own city, and I'll just leave you with this, small little city, but we have had over 250 food distributions. We have two a week, and it's over, you know, thousands of our residents give out literally tons of food to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who come. And, 
that is always exhilarating. And, you know, you always wonder whether your community is like that, but it takes a moment like this to see it. Great. Uh, Derek, you want to go next? Sure. Well, what I'm optimistic about, honestly, is that we have vaccines which can be improved with a fairly short turnaround. We have the way out of this. We know what we need to do, both in the masking and social distancing and in the vaccinating line. So it may take longer than we'd like. It may take a little longer than what we had hoped for, but the way out is there, and we're heading for it. So honestly, I'm still optimistic, even though we're not out of the woods. And that's great, because I actually was very distressed by some of your comments about these variants. Um, oh, yeah, they're, they're not good. They're not good, but yeah. we, the vaccines we're, we have now can definitely help a lot protecting them, and the updates to them, as they turn around quickly, we're going to get there. It's just not going to be fun. Steve, you want to go next? Sure. Um, so I'm optimistic about how many Americans will now be able to participate in the American dream of home ownership. So historically, owning a house is a path to financial stability and wealth creation. And people are buying homes for the first time with 2 and 3% long-term fixed-rate mortgages. And others are refinancing to those rates. So over the next 10 to 15 years, those low mortgage rates are going to increase prosperity for an expanding portion of the U.S. population, which I think is great. Robert? Um, thanks. Uh, there's a lot of talk in my field about the so-called new normal in schooling, which I've been, you know, frankly, dismissive of, even contemptuous of. I think um, the, the, the new normal is, is nothing to be pleased with, and, and we want to go back to the old normal, most of us, as, as soon as possible. I mean, we kind of like these things called schools. That said, my optimism is about what I would describe as, or what I perceive to be, this kind of emerging uh, dynamism in, in education. Uh, some, some number of Americans have not sat by and waited for schools to reopen. They have acted. They formed pandemic pods. They've uh, embraced homeschooling, uh, any number of unconventional uh, and creative and dynamic ways of ensuring that their kids are, are uh, persisting, learning, moving ahead. Uh, and, and in a field that is, is not known for its dynamism, uh, that can only be a good thing, and that can only have beneficial effects on American education at large. Great. Alan? Well, uh, in spite of everything I said during my comments about political dysfunction, I, I actually think that the way our federal government is set up right now with uh, unified control of Cong both houses of Congress and the president presidency, but with a very close uh, division in Congress, is going to be conducive to uh, getting things done in Congress and, and actually having compromises um, uh, across the aisle. Um, and I think we're, we're already seeing signs of that in the negotiations about the current uh, a fiscal uh, stimulus proposal, and I, I don't want to overstate my my optimism, but I, I actually think uh, we may, uh, you know, over the course of the next several months, see the federal government start to uh, function at least uh, at some level. Okay. All right. With that, that ends uh, today's program. I just want to plug our next week's show. Uh, my friend Mitch Feynman will join me as a co-host. We're going to have a panel on artificial intelligence. Uh, we're also going to hear from the history of science professor Ruth Cowan uh, from Penn. 
uh, Stanford law professor Lawrence Friedman on the history of uh, the penitentiary, and from Harvard uh, economist Benjamin Friedman on the role of religion and capitalism. All right, with that, that is the end of today's show. Thank you so much for joining. I want to thank our speakers for all of their time and insight, and our audience, as always, for their participation. Uh, you may disconnect, and thank you very much. Have a great day. Bye-bye.